Liz, baby, we got to start selling fucking supplements. Uh, that's the Belden program. The Belden program, well, Belden program is financed solely by supplement sales. But yeah, we got to, we got to, we got to, you heard of this shit, Ginkgo Boboa? What? You heard Ginkgo of Biloba. Biloba? Well, I yeah. guess it's not working then. It fucking, it's a, it's like a, it's a natural nootropic, apparently. A what? Nootropic. <laughs> I'm sorry. What's N-O-O-tropics. <laughs> like nootropic. I'm not doing a bit here. I really, I, if I'm mispronouncing any of these sound, things, it was not on purpose. It really process. didn't look like that's what you were trying to say. Nootropic. Well, it's just like a nootropic, you know, like it's like a guy like. Isn't it nootropics? Nootropics. Yeah. Uh. It is, it's like a brain pill. Like, if you take it, you're smarter. But it doesn't... You know uh, um, the kind that cows take? No. Moo Tropic. Oh man, I've been looking forward to this for so long. Me too. I mean, for Christ's sake, I've been looking forward to. I can't remember when we did the last episodes, but I don't think it was on nine eleven. Uh, was it? Did we do those last September? No. Okay, I have no. I, I I can't believe it's September right now. I have no idea. I what know it's so weird. Really is going on with time? Uh, before we get into it, hello, I'm Liz. I refuse to introduce myself. Okay, well, that's that's Brace. We are also, of course, joined by Young Chomsky, and this is 9-11 week on TrueNon. Mm-hmm. Hello. Hello. We are, we are, uh, we, so actually, I, I, I do want to say, I want to preface this with, if you have not listened to all of the other 9-11 episodes we've done, uh, do turn not listen off. to this one. Turn this yeah, off. Turn this it's, off. It's, it's not going to make any sense. I understand. You might have even listened to those a while ago. Maybe give them another listen. Because this is really the fourth installment, meaning you should have listened to the other three installments. Yeah, actually, so, you know how people do that joke? Like, <laughs> if I haven't seen the third one, do I need to sit? You know what I mean? Or if I haven't seen the first one, can I see the third? You know, and they make a little joke about it. This or whatever. chick sounds hot. Whatever. All I'm saying is, actually, this it. isn't a joke. And no. If you haven't listened to the other ones, you got to do it before you listen to this because it's not going to make any sense. Yeah. Can you do that girls always again? No. Okay. Yeah. It's not going to make a lot of sense to you. Um, and, you know, sometimes even your, my co-host might be mean to you if you, you do something. Yeah. This is uh, True Anon where we tell you to turn off our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Without further ado, we are joined by the one and only True Anon 9-11 consultant. Ooh, consultant. That sounds, that's a very 9-11 word. Yeah. Uh, ben, a.k.a. House Trotter. Uh, let's, uh, let's roll the tape, sweetheart. Let's go. All right. Take off the black bags. Exit the electrodes from all points of the body. And lower the prisoners, because we are back. Uh, we have today a something of a syncretic episode. Uh, and, and that is to say that, that uh, long-time listeners will remember our 9-11 miniseries with, uh, with, with our uh, fellow researcher, Ben. 
and our Spider Network series, which has had a whole bunch of different guests on it. But many people haven't yet put together the fact that these are actually the same series. <laughs> and so today, for the week of 9-11, 9-11 week, we're calling it, uh, we have returning with us Ben, an independent researcher that's at House Trotter on Twitter, uh, here to talk about the swamp that birthed 9-11 and the swamp creatures that did it. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you guys? Good. We're so happy to have you back. Oh, yeah, I'm I glad am, to be here. I am thrumming, Ben. I am, <laughs> I am electric because we are, we are combining um, many things which I uh, greatly enjoy talking about. Yeah, I'm doing the many points of light, George H.W. Bush. It's all just intersecting. (laughs) It's everything. It's coming together. You you know, people, I will say, like, reading this kind of stuff, people don't give the the far right credit enough just for how intersectional it is. Absolutely. I mean, you've got all kinds of different Europeans. Uh, You know, it's, it's a real melting pot. I mean, where else could you get Catholics and Al Qaeda? And, uh, and my people, I mean, we're all there, baby. It's, it's really the first, uh, movement. It's, 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 it's the first thing that really brought everyone in the world together, uh, to do nine 11. Um, so, so start us off here, baby. What are we, what are we working with? Well, I think one of the, uh, you know, I hate ascribing nine 11 to like one particular group, but I think if we could like slice off one little piece of the power network that this is, uh, would be Le Cirque, uh, or I just call it the Circle because I'm I'm an American. Uh, but this this group is a very interesting one. It's it's a whole lot of different right wing politicians with connections to this Nazi spider network. It's a lot of people in finance in the United States. Uh, it's a very interesting network of people that that definitely uh, was at least one of the groups that did 9/11. Yeah, so this is a group that, you know, we've uh, teased on the show before, in, or we've referenced them in various episodes um, over the past year, but we've actually never done a, like, proper deep dive into who exactly they are, and, um, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, kind of like how we were talking in the, the Spider Network series is they're pretty much one of the major kind of post-war private global intelligence elite organizations that have shaped post-war world, the second half of the 20th 20th century. Yeah. I I think to me, like the really interesting thing about, uh, about the circle is there's, there's a wonderful book by David teacher called rogue agents, uh, which took him a long time to get published. And once you read it, you can kind of see why. Uh, that does a pretty good job of kind of laying down the background of Le Cirque. And that's, that's a lot to get into today. Um, but, but it's, it's interesting to note that it came out of, of the pan-European movement, which was at the beginning of the 20th century, a relatively fresh movement. A guy named Richard Nicholas Ajiro, uh, wrote the Pan-Europa Manifesto. And this guy, this guy himself is a really interesting character. He is a half Japanese, half Austrian, Austrian count. Uh, and, and this really took off among, among certain parts of the nobility, this idea of a European, a pan-European super state. Uh, and at first, like this was, this was like a, just, I mean, pretty much big among the nobility, but as you can see, like after world war two, obviously, I mean, people still are very much into this idea. Uh, but, but 
that sort of milieu, and there was a lot of these such groups, like uh, like various like pan-European groups kind of floating around Europe in the pre-war era. Uh, and then, you know, World War I happened, World War II happened, and, and things started to change a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think like the, uh, particularly the, you mentioned like the Catholic part, like there's a lot of different ideologies that play into this. Like one of them is mm-hmm. sort of the Catholic nobility wanting to uh, reunite Europe and and the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, and you know, sort of make this Catholic European uh, superstate. On the other hand, there's also like ex-Nazis uh, yes. and and sort of fascist collaborators within the various governments uh, who were basically tolerated uh, and sometimes you know were were quite powerful, um, who who wanted to continue this project on. And it's it's it kind of reminds me of people like Paul Schaefer are like kind of the lower mm-hmm. end of this scale. But these are people like, you know, one of the Le Cirque founders was Antoine Panet, uh, who had been a collaborationist in the Vichy government in France. Uh, you know, people like this who, uh, at a very elite level, were part of the, not necessarily Nazis, but, but very much willing to collaborate with fascists if it advanced their career. Uh, and that's kind of what they continued to do after the war. Yeah, with, with, with Panay in particular, I think this is Panay who I'm talking about. If not, it might be his right-hand man, uh, uh, Jean Violet. But I, but I believe one of them was part of a group called La Cagoule, uh, which was, I mean, like we've talked about in the Spider Network series, uh, the 30s, the 20s and 30s, and, and sort of little go, got supplanted by World War II, but the 20s and 30s especially, Europe was rife with these, and America for that matter too, was rife with these sort of mystic nationalist fascist organizations and and la cagoule in particular means the cowl i i know i'm not pronouncing it correctly but hey fucking sue me uh and and these guys much like like the theme murderers that we talked about in in germany they would wear these cowls over their head they would meet and sort of have these ritualistic meetings it was all really neo-masonic and, and you see the masonic influence and i know I know what you're all thinking. I'm not like a Masons guy, but like these guys are just like budget Masons in terms of like rituals and stuff. And I mean that 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 even continues on after the war. But like like a ghoul, you know, they would commit terrorist attacks. I mean, a lot of it really mirrors um, sort of like the the civil war uh, between De Gaulle and the OAS after World War II. Um, but, but yeah, they would commit terrorist attacks and then a lot of them, they, they, some of them were very fiercely anti-German and then a lot of them also ended up collaborating. Yeah, I mean, even the first, like, very the very first European economic integration was the steel and coal mm-hmm. uh, between France and Germany. Yeah. Uh, and there was that whole issue of how do we deal with the, the very industrial areas of Germany and, you know, were they going to suppress that? And eventually, like, these kind of, this right-wing network was able to integrate West Germany completely into the rest of the European uh, economy, which mm-hmm. is definitely a huge part of their, their early goal. Um, yeah. So... That brings us to Le Cirque. Uh, that's sort of where that came from. And, and tell us about where, where exactly the origins of, of Le Cirque, like the specific ones. Yeah, so it was, it was, really, it was really started up by Antoine Panet, uh, who, was, as I mentioned earlier, was a collaborationist with the, uh, the Vichy government in France, and he, he was later the prime minister in the early 50s. Um, so he was really the key person that brought this together. Otto von Habsburg uh, was also very closely involved. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, there's definitely this aristocratic element to it. Uh, and then Franz Josef Strauss, uh, mm. who was a defense minister in Germany, uh, he was a member of the uh, Christian Social Union, I think is the name of the party. 
but basically a Christian Democrat uh, party in, in Bavaria. Uh, he was also a longtime uh, minister president of Bavaria, uh, which is just bad, bad vibes from Bavaria in general yeah. uh, at this period for sure. Uh, so these are really the key the key people in putting this together, and obviously this is a you know Habsburg is is obviously very big in Austria. Uh, Habsburg, I mean, people wanted Habsburg to be the king of Spain under Franco, like that was something that a lot of Opus Dei people were pushing for. So they also had big ties into into Spain and Portugal at this time, uh, but they really proceeded to bring in. It, I mean, it, it was nominally a Catholic group, and definitely it has a lot of overlap with Opus Dei and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, but obviously there are a lot of non-Catholics uh, who are a part of it as well. And they really used existing social networks, things like Masons, uh, other groups like that, to, to kind of assemble this network of different people. Um, so that's really where it has its origins. Uh, and then eventually, I mean, what it, what it ends up becoming ultimately... Uh, is, a, as you mentioned, sort of a, a private intelligence network composed of these elites uh, who have access to state intelligence agencies, uh, and they also create their own private intelligence agency called the 6I. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they use this to get information. Obviously, they're all various different heads of state, senior ministers, so they're sharing information around uh, and, and you know, conspiring with one another to do various things across Europe, uh, such as uh, this network of right-wing groups that are committing terrorist attacks, false flag terrorist attacks across Europe, uh, particularly starting in the 60s. Yeah, so, I mean, it does sort of emerge as, you know, um, you know, we talk about the the pan-Europa movement. Obviously, the EU comes out of this, which is something that maybe we'll, we can get into later if we have time. But also, um, you know, I, I mean, basically they saw after the war that a way to re-strengthen Europe after the decimation of World War II was in a French-German partnership. And de Gaulle made that really difficult. And we've sort of talked about that a little bit and the and the kind of, you know, um, behind-the-scenes war in France that de Gaulle kind of faced with the intelligence groups. Um, but as that they're kind of strengthening that partnership, the there is a point where this extends beyond Europe and the United States gets involved. And that's when um, Le Cirque gets much bigger, it seems. And and its goals then are not so much just about, uh, you know, strengthening the industrial production of Europe and securing certain profits for elites and, and managing um, kind of, you know, you know, various communist parties, which we'll we'll get into that too. Um, but also becomes like a real like, you know, global partnership uh, across the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, the particularly uh, in France, you know, in Germany, their main person was Franz Josef Strauss, and his his political career kind of peaked and then fell. You know, Panay was by far the most powerful person they, they yeah. had in France, and his his career also sort of peaked in the 50s. He was still very well connected, but not as politically powerful. And so this sort of Anglo-American group stepped in to, to kind of fill that gap. So people like Brian Crozier, who had been uh, sort of a propagandist for the British government uh, during World War II, uh, on the American side, uh, John McCain's dad was one of the <laughs> early people that was part of this Um so it was this, it was these, these sort of things started to percolate between the United States uh, and Britain, and particularly uh, when Bill Casey became mm. uh, a Le Cirque member. And as that kind of H.W. Bush clique of people 
climbed up, particularly in the Ford years, but obviously especially in the Reagan years. Uh, that's when the the American, I wouldn't say dominance, but but definitely uh, you know the the U.S. element was much stronger at that point, and the British element as well. We should also mention that like one of the biggest opponents or like one of the biggest foes of Le Cirque. Um, I, sh- I guess I should just say the circle, but I'm like already accustomed to saying Le Cirque. I keep, I keep mixing so- them up. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I sound so stupid, but it's okay. Um, was the Soviet Union. And like, so it wasn't just that they wanted like to rebuild France and Germany. Like it was an explicit uh, anti-communist uh project but also like vehemently trying to dismantle the soviet union i i think like there's one incident which is to me like emblematic of just like part of the project that they were engaged in and and this took place uh during the nixon presidency and so kissinger uh friend of the pod henry kissinger and uh and his good chum david rockefeller uh, had been going to Le Cirque meetings. The first Le Cirque meeting actually in America was at the Rockefeller Center, which is insanely funny. I assume it took place in some kind of boardroom and probably not the main stage or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but at one point, uh, David Rockefeller is handed a document by a group called Sint Unum, which is uh, a Latin word, a pair of Latin words that I know the definition of, but I'm just not telling you, called Study of Subversion Within the Catholic Church. Uh, the document was in French. Rockefeller gives it to, to 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 Kissinger. Kissinger has it translated by CIA translators, and then he hands it directly to Richard Nixon. And so, at this time, there was like, I, I, you know, I'm no expert on American relations with the Holy See, but at this time, there was some like controversy over whether there should be an American representative in the Vatican. There hadn't been one, I think, since the fifties. And and this group uh, was sort of trying to use that because there, there was there was a lot of pressure to put one back there. There's also a, a lot of pressure to not uh, to not put a representative there. And so this group sent Unum looked like they were trying to sort of play on that. Uh, they were claiming that there were two big nexuses of basically like subversion within the Catholic Church. One came from the left, which they implied was financed by the Polish and Soviet governments. And then one came in the form of modernist modernism. That's all, that's all it was, modernism. Uh, and, and they had very specific asks. They asked to fund a science magazine in Montreal. They asked to fund a, magazine, a biweekly magazine for bishops. Uh, they asked for quite a lot of basically funds for propaganda, $13.4 million. Uh, unfortunately, well, excuse me, I shouldn't say unfortunately. In reality... Sint Unum was actually Le Cirque uh, and, and was headed by the, uh, by the head of the Fiat group, a guy named Carlos Pacenti. Uh, and, and this is just like one tiny glimpse at what these guys were up to. And the, the ease which these guys have of giving this document over, because when in reality what this is, is a document requesting funds for right-wing church groups. And that is rather strange that that's making it onto the president's desk, you know? Uh, they actually, Kissinger advised against it, um, possibly because they had some even further right church groups they had to fund or something. Oh, they're always like, we're already giving you guys a bunch of money. Uh, but it's just, I, I, for some reason that, that to me is like a very sort of telling example. Yeah. I mean, that was a huge part of what they did was just anti-communist propaganda basically everywhere. 
uh, across Europe and the United States. I mean, they were very close with the Heritage Foundation in the United States. Mm. Uh, both of the founders were, were Lucerc members. So obviously they're pushing tons of g- just generally right-wing propaganda as well mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, it, was a, it, was a huge, it was a huge element of what they did. Yeah, also uh, Mika Brzezinski's father was a member, which uh, very cool. So you can't really mention secret organizations in Europe without mentioning the most secret and the most organized of these organizations, which would be, well, Gladio was an organization, it was a project, uh, but which would be, to term it in, in modern language, the Gladio movement. Um, and, and from what I understand, that had quite a lot of overlap with, with Le Cirque. In fact, in, in, my, in my head, you kind of can't really separate any of this stuff. It seems to be all totally incestual in the same thing. Yeah, I mean, if you talk about like Italian Gladio, which is obviously the, the kind of the prototypical Gladio, uh, you know, Andriotti, who was the defense minister of Italy, um, he was actually the person who revealed the existence of Gladio uh, to the world. He basically, you know, published this. Uh, he, he got in front of parliament, actually, and was basically like, yeah, we had this secret army. And, you know, wasn't that so great? Uh, and he, you know, this, this is kind of gets into the Mason connection, but there was this Masonic lodge in Italy that was organizing these right wing terrorist attacks. And the intention in, in, in Italy was to, uh, make sure that the communists and the socialists were not able to win very many votes in the elections to generally sort of neutralize the, the further left, the more militant left wing movements that were active in Italy at this time. Uh, and to just generally create an atmosphere of, uh, of sort of tension, political tension, which the right wing in particular could exploit to maintain political control over Italy. So they, I mean, they basically, what they did was they funded right wing Italian militias. Some of, some of the people had been fascists. Some of them were mm-hmm. just neo-fascist. Uh, but all of them were, were right wing. They got access to these weapons caches, which they would use to for example, bomb a bunch of police officers or bomb a train station, bomb a, a, a piazza, you know, kill a ton of people. I mean, by, by the standards of the day, you know, it was, it was very significant political violence to kill, you know, 80 people in a train station. Um, obviously, their, their false flags got a lot more elaborate and larger uh, over the years. But this is where they, they got their start. So in Italy, you know, to speak of the Italian example in particular, this connection with Andriotti is pretty clear. I mean, he's a very frequent Lacerc member interacting with people who are organizing precisely the same kinds of operations in Belgium, in West Germany, in Portugal, mm. uh, you know, all over Europe. They're, they're organizing these right wing. Uh, I mean, you could call it, you guys called it civil war in, in the French context. And that was a little bit different, but I think it kind of was. It was sort of a low level civil war that was managed by the European elite uh, for their political ends. Yeah, and I mean this 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 spread all over Europe. I mean, they were still finding arms caches like within the last couple of decades that had been buried in Switzerland and places like that. And like you know, we, we talk about Gladio, but I believe Gladio was really only the name of the Italian operation. But there were these these separate but intersectional operations going on in every country. Um, I mean, a lot there's a lot of talk about that's where where Detroit came from. Uh, it's you know how Olaf Palm was killed. Um, and, and, and it, it's really astounding just how organized they were with these stay-behind armies because they did create these large stay-behind armies. 
But these were, they needed to put these to a use because the Soviets weren't exactly invading. Uh, and, and, you know, this strategy of tension that they used in, in Italy was replicated on different scales in different places too. I mean, certainly in Turkey, one can make the, the comparison there. Um, and, and this fascist bombing, I mean, there was almost the, 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 the Italian, you know, sort of neo post-war neo-fascist tried to coup the Italian government in a really half-assed way in 1971, led by the Black Prince, which, you know, the guy sucks and all, but got to respect the nickname. Um, and, and like, it was, it was really like no holds barred. I mean, I, and, and that's like, that's kind of what I want to impress upon people is because I don't think that I, I know a single person who listens to this podcast who would be like, oh yeah, of course the Bolo- uh, the Bologna uh, train station bombing, false flag. Um, but for some reason, like it, 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 this is what I want to say is that this is like the same kind of operation by the same kind of group. In fact, the same operation by the same group. And like that, that's what I want people to kind of put together. Yeah, this is an I just want to read really quick from an excerpt of just one of the memos that was found. Um, the headquarters of a press office in Portugal, but it was basically the headquarters for the Portuguese state behind network. I think this is from like 74, 75. Um, so they would have been controlled by, again, same group, Le Cirque, but also really NATO um, is, is like another big, big force here that we maybe we'll get into. Um, we don't talk enough about them, by the way, just I'm making a little mental note of my enemies. Well, we have a NATO. sponsorship issue, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this podcast gets Atlantic Council money, right? So, oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't understand what's wrong with Only it. We it. like the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> I, I haven't looked into it further than that. Yeah, protect the seas. I'm all about yeah. that. What's wrong with being Atlanticist? I want to find Atlanta, Atlantis. <laughs> Um, So this is an excerpt from one of the memos. Um, And so you'll see how explicit this is. They write, Our belief is that the first phase of political activity ought to create the conditions favoring the installation of chaos in all the regime structures. This should necessarily begin with the undermining of the state economy so as to arrive at confusion through the whole legal apparatus. This leads on to a situation of strong political tension, fear in the world of industry and hostility toward the government and the political parties. In our view, the first move we should make is to destroy the structure of the democratic state under the cover of communist and pro-Chinese activities. Moreover, we have people who have infiltrated these groups, and obviously we will have to tailor our actions to the ethos of the milieu, propaganda and action of a sort which will seem to have emanated from our communist adversaries and pressure brought to bear on people in whom power is invested at every level. That will create a feeling of hostility toward those who threaten the people of each and every nation, and at the same time, we must raise up a defender of the citizenry against the disintegration brought about by terrorism and subversion. So, like, I mean, they're, like, explicit, like, you know, again, this is something that we try to emphasize in the podcast in various episodes, and I feel like it's going to be a continuing, like, point that we are going to try and drive home, but, like... These people are incredibly organized, incredibly strategic, and are carrying things out with incredible discipline across the globe for decades. <laughs> and, their, and their propaganda network is so incredible is that while they are in the process of subverting the European, the Western European political process, all that they're doing is producing a propaganda that accuses the Soviet Union of doing yeah. that to the West. Uh, and just 
straight up making things up, creating this with this propaganda, this political environment where you would be primed to see uh, left wing bombings, right? In this yeah. media environment where all of these elites are telling you, yeah, the, the Soviets are trying to subvert our democracy. You know, those people are in the headspace so that when, for example, a supposedly left wing group bombs a train station, they believe that, even though it doesn't make any sense. And obviously, it's, a, it's actually a right wing group that's controlled by the state. Yeah, and that propaganda is so strong and so lasting that even supposed liberal left editors of supposed liberal left magazines will continue to propagate such propaganda pieces as, you know, recent as just a couple days ago. Well, I, I as think a, for like, instance. I, I think that like one thing that this all really impresses on someone is that like the people that we're talking about are basically uh, capable of incredible evil. You know, like I, I doubt many listeners of this show would uh would bomb a train station full of innocent people. Uh I doubt most people in the world would. Uh and and the fact that like there is absolutely no qualm about doing any of this kind of stuff, but in fact this is a chosen tactic. I mean there's the Brabant massacre massacres in 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 Belgium. There are uh there's Marc Dutroux uh, you know, there's there's all of the violence that took place in. I mean, because of course the South American network is also intersected with this. I mean, what what this amounted was to was like in some parts of the world, like a small scale or sometimes large scale genocide, and in other parts of the world where they couldn't get away with stuff like that, like in Italy, uh, you know, they it's it's targeted assassinations and just the total smearing of the left. And you know what? It worked. You know, like that, that's the thing I think a lot of people understand. It's like, this wasn't just like a conflict that was frozen in time or like that people think of this as like one front in the cold war, but like this was a victorious battle in the cold war. Um, and, and they, they haven't finished fighting it because they're not actually fighting an enemy here. They're like, they're fighting, they're fighting basically like the ideas of, of, you know, uh, land, bread, freedom, whatever, you know, that's like that, that, that is what they're fighting. And so there's no end to it ever. Well, uh, one person we just briefly mentioned, but I think we need to spend some time on is Rockefeller, because he's like a really big figure in, uh, you know, the U.S. basically the U.S. partnership with this group Le Cirque and you know various kind of iterations that it grows into, um, and and you know, <laughs> I I like paused for a second when you said that the first meeting was at Rockefeller Center because all I could think of was like fucking Alec Baldwin, like Thirty Rock, but it being like it, one oh, of the most present. sinister, most important like meetings in American history <laughs> on this fucking like sitcom backdrop was just like kind of making me feel a little sick and dizzy. But uh, David Rockefeller, uh, a big figure in American politics that doesn't get mentioned enough, I think, surprisingly. Yeah, I think people associate him with, uh, there's a lot of people who, who don't take, for example, the CFR or mm. groups like that very seriously. Yeah, uh, Council on Foreign Rockef Relations, just yeah, case, yeah, 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 yeah. Who, who, I mean, basically run American foreign policy, more yeah. or less. I mean, that's a broad group. Of, that's a large lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but the elite among that group definitely run American foreign policy. And obviously, that's very closely, you know, Rockefeller basically created this group uh, uh, post-war. So it's, it's not surprising that he would intersect with a lot of the same people uh, who, were, who were doing this in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, but he's I, like basically known as like a. I love when people just call billionaires philanthropists. 
I think that's yeah. how you learn about Rockefeller. Yeah. Oh, he's just a well, philanthropist. Well, if you got a foundation, I mean, like Ford. I think of Ford as nothing less than a philanthropist <laughs> who funds many important left-wing groups. Um, it, it's 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 in keeping with 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 Ford's lifelong tradition to socialism. Uh, anyways, but like Rockefeller, if I'm not mistaken, built the World Trade Center. He sure did. Yes, it was going to be the crown jewel of of Manhattan, and it was for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, it was funny researching this. I, I actually I, I found out um, that the twin towers were at one point named David and Nelson. I did which, not know that. Yes, uh, I and I that was from a few different sources too. Which that that is one of those, and I've talked about this before. But that, it, this can't even be a synchronicity because they did nine eleven. But like it's it's just one of those things that I read and I get a, a an electric feeling in me. I, I really I liked reading. That. There's a, um, there's a photo of David Rockefeller like standing next to a small scale model of the towers. And it's just like a real I've like just mind meld moment where you're like, oh, this is all just one, <laughs> one thing. And they've, they've tried to like, in, 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 and I think Brian Crozier wrote like a, some, some really sort of PC memoirs uh, about, about his life. And he's tried to portray, uh, it's called something agents. I can't remember. I know teacher's book, Rogue Agents is sort of like a poke of, poking fun at his title um yes yeah and and he basically just describes the cirque as like just a discussion group between people who like uh, like western countries yeah <laughs> yeah he tried to say that there was not even a membership list really that they just sort of invited people on a whim i guess uh but very clearly there's a there's a, a membership list of, of people yeah crozier wrote that memoir and actually rockefeller in his memoir um I think first off, so he got involved because Pacenti invited him. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. uh, Pacenti was this big, uh, Carlos Pacenti was this big financier in Italy, one of the, one of the wealthiest people in Italy. And he was a big uh, client of Rockefeller's, a big client of J.P. Morgan Chase. And so uh, he, invited, he invited Rockefeller. And Rock, this is what Rockefeller says, that he went to a few meetings, but that people were uh, worried because this was a very far right-wing group and it would look bad if he stayed a member of this group. Uh, which I just think is so, f- whether it's true or not that he did actually leave at this time, it's just very funny that there's people further right wing than, than Rockefeller that you can't associate <laughs> with. Whenever I read about him, I always do remember that cocaine ship that got seized with $1.3 billion oh, yeah. worth of cocaine that we really didn't hear much about besides that. Um, <laughs> and, and for some reason, I feel like we're not going to. Whenever I think about that, I always think about the ones we just haven't heard of. <laughs> the yeah. ones that were successful <laughs> were oh. never seized. Any enterprising merchant mariners out there, hit our <laughs> line. <laughs> so Rockefeller is actually the one who brings Nixon into the fold, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's the one who makes that connection. And a lot of that, again, just to mention our buddies, my understanding is that a lot of that had to do with basically Nixon. So, again, you know, Kissinger's his national security advisor. And Rockefeller brings in Kissinger, brings in Nixon. And, and a lot of this had to do with basically wanting to strengthen U.S. ties with NATO and with the European NATO countries and using these CERC meetings as a kind of intermediary for anything more kind of 
I guess, above the board or formal um, in that way. So it was kind of like a, he was like kind of a weird like conduit between Le Cirque and the Nixon administration. Yeah, definitely. And especially in light of the fact that, um, you know, often there were conflicts about sort of with this Rockefeller uh, American foreign policy, there were, there ended up being conflicts with that within the American political system. So I think it, it kind of had this, the, the, what it ended up being is kind of a Trojan horse where a lot of the right wing in Europe ended up advancing, for example, uh, Reagan in the United States Mm -hmm. in the 80s. Um, And, you know, I don't uh, I don't mean to portray the ruling elite as sort of fractured or anything like that. They definitely have very common goals, but there are definitely different tactics or, or sort of different strategies that people think are the best ones to use. And this sort of Kissinger uh, faction of people gets pushed out in part because of this Lucerque group having an influence on, on American politics and advancing that sort of Bush and in, in the UK, Thatcher uh, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. An- another group you mentioned was Six I, and I feel like we should kind of explain a little bit of that. I don't want anyone to get confused. That's not Five Eyes, which is the. They um, lost an eye. <laughs> yeah. No, this Paul is Schaefer like. Paul style. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is like six, uh, the number six, I, the letter I, but is is separate and a much earlier kind of iteration of intelligence operations than what, uh, you know, from the Snowden revelations on the Five Eyes agreement between the five countries. But six I was kind of like, um, I mean, I don't know the best way to put it, Ben, you're probably better with this than I am. But I mean, I would say that it's basically like, you know, and this is something we mentioned on the Spider Network series, too, is that you have to understand that Vietnam and Watergate were a huge headache for the intel, like all intelligence agencies and like that stuff coming and Congress basically trying to reassert a kind of like political role by providing oversight and, you know, hearings and however controlled that was, it was still like a total headache for them. And what basically kind of emerged out of that was then, okay, well, how can we have like a more privatized CIA operation, right? How can we have a more privatized uh, intelligence group, which is a funny thing to say when you're talking about basically a group kind of acting above the CIA in even more secret. But that's kind of what 6I was about, right? Is that, is that a, do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, definitely. Because you, met, you mentioned like all these commissions that were happening in the U.S. Um, and, you know, uh, definitely the CIA was still up to a lot of shenanigans during this period, but they definitely felt hamstrung. And they mm-hmm. definitely, I think, it scared them, the idea that Congress would try to stop them. So they they created a bunch of different networks to try to get around this. One was to use the intelligence agencies. We talked about like the United States, uh, the CIA's relationship with the Saudi intelligence agency, GID mm-hmm. and ISI, mm-hmm. the Pakistani service, uh, obviously involved in like all the all the Mujahideen stuff. So they created that kind of network, the Safari Club network. But the Six I was another angle to take it from. Uh, so it was basically, uh, it was a lot of British industrialists, because it was run by uh, Brian Crozier, who was this, mm-hmm. um, I guess he was mostly a propagandist, is what you would call him. Like, he worked for the, um, he worked for the, the foreign office, the, the British foreign office during World War II, making propaganda. And uh, basically, how this privatization process started, uh, at least in this case, was that Crozier had this propaganda network uh, operation that was running within the British government. 
and it was producing anti-communist propaganda for the British government to use, you know, against the Soviet Union. Um, and people did not like this. They, there were liberals, you know, in British society who were sort of upset at the idea that the British government was pushing a particular political line. So Crozier basically got fired and had to start a private group that would do exactly the same thing. And he went out and got funding from industrialists. Uh, and that's, that's sort of how he inter- ended up intersecting with Le Cirque, was that he was going to mm-hmm. be their propagandist. So that was basically the role that he served. Uh, but it, yeah, as you mentioned, when we get into the 70s, when these intelligence agencies uh, start to at least feel scared, feel like they need you know, another, another route to do this kind of stuff, uh, stuff like the 6I gets formed. Uh, and it's basically, uh, it's not a, it's not an, so there are groups like Kroll that we'll talk about that are actual, mm-hmm. you know, registered licensed companies. So 6I is not that, it is, it's still a private group, it has to operate through fronts. Crozier has plenty of, of, you know, publishing houses as fronts that he, that he used for this purpose mm-hmm. to pay people. Um, and so because Crozier was running Le Cirque, which was this organization of a lot of very prominent right-wing politicians in Europe and in the United States, now he's got these connections uh, where he's getting requests from people about information that he can give them. And he's also getting information from all of these different contacts. And so it ends up being uh, with, with Crozier and, and a few other people uh, at the top, it ends up being sort of an information clearinghouse and also ultimately because of that, a way to plan different kinds of operations. So mm-hmm. this network gets used, uh, for example, in Iran, Towards the end of the Shah, yeah. uh, Shah's reign in the late 70s, they sort of set up this, this propaganda and spy operation within Iran. Um, but even to manipulating elections in Britain, I mean, they helped get Thatcher elected. Right. Mm-hmm. And they did this in and large Reagan. part. And Reagan. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, and they did this by making propaganda, putting it out through channels like the Heritage Foundation in the United States, uh, and also spying, just spying on politicians, spying on ordinary people. Uh, in order to get information that would be useful to their movement. They had a pretty, They didn't they forge an early relationship with Murdoch? That's like my understanding is that so. like Murdoch and Roy Cohn kind of like got in when they were pushing Reagan specifically, but also in terms of helping Murdoch kind of grow his businesses, obviously. So it's like kind of working in tandem at the same time. They, they, I, I, they had some involvement too with the Sandinistas as well. Yeah, I don't even know much about their Contra stuff, but I'm sure that there's a lot of it. Yeah, it always everyone comes, was all these in there. guys come all back together with Contra. It's always fun. Yeah. It's like oh, yeah. the whole gang's there. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think like once we see in like the late '60s, uh, '70s. I mean, really, it started uh, kind of in the the, the early mid '60s. I know we've talked about the Paladin Group before on the mm. show which was Otto Skorzeny's sort of joint enterprise with, I believe, a U.S. Army colonel in Spain, uh, where, where Otto Skorzeny also had quite a large fascist group, Dad, uh, I think. Um, and they trained Green Berets in, in, in warfare. I, we, I believe we talked about that in the last sort of Spider Network episode. Um, but that really, the ball really gets rolling with that uh, in the post-Vietnam War era, because you know, we have these private intelligence agencies. And, and to be clear, like, since people have been doing intelligence work, people have been doing intelligence work, let's say, off the books or, you know, uh, is in an entrepreneurial manner. But it really becomes formalized in the 60s and 70s. And we have these groups that, like, are no longer are just doing, like, you know, RAND Corporation style, you know, intelligence gathering, risk assessment or spying on people. 
uh, but they actually start fielding their own armed troops or, or you know, bringing out trainers to the field to, to, to you know, find the next big Savimbi. Um, and, but Savimbi, by the way, uh, represented by uh, some Trump's people too. Um, it's, it's, it's really astounding. Like that comes like, like we're talking about with Kroll. Um, you know, that, that they really are like emblematic of like really the more like New York Manhattan version of this. You know, this, this all goes on to layers. You know, there are some down and dirty fucking groups that will, you know, go cut someone's head off for you. But then there's like these sort of Wall Street groups as well. Of course, Wall Street where the CIA came from as well. Um, but like it's, 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 it's a level. Yeah. Ben, can you break down Kroll Inc. for us? Yeah, so I think uh, I think that's a great context to put Kroll in because it is it is not like a normal. So it's nominally a normal company. It's a registered yeah. licensed company that you know lots of big corporations hire for various reasons. You mentioned like security consulting, and I mean a lot of it is is basically industrial espionage that kind of thing as well. Um, but it is it is a part of uh, sort of as you mentioned like a range of different types of private intelligence corporations, um, and they get into you know, they have connections to the Cirque. So, so Le Cirque is, is uh, during this period, one of the big outlets for Le Cirque is, is in South Africa uh, and trying to prop up the apartheid government in South Africa. Um, and of course, they had all kinds of uh, propaganda and things that they would try to get Western politicians, you know, European and American politicians to support South Africa. But they obviously also had, uh, mil- you know, private military corporations that they were mm. uh, supporting. And one of these was Kroll. Uh, and this is where Kroll came into contact with, for example, the SAS. Uh, a lot of former SAS people uh, ended up forming these, these kinds of private military corporations. And these are the same kinds of people who go into Kroll. So, you know, like Kroll's CEO uh, on 9-11 was an SAS vet. Uh, their deputy CEO, who I think became their, their Iraq guy uh, mm-hmm. after, the, after the invasion, he was also SAS. Um, so it was, it's this, it's basically, you know, uh, 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 a nice cushy retirement for these operators, these people who are, uh, working for the government. And it basically gives, uh, elites access to the same, the same caliber thing that states have access to, uh, but without some of the pesky oversight. Uh, so it becomes very handy. But then the other great thing about Kroll is that because they're a legit corporation, you can also uh, hire them for your legit operations and give them a very nice front. So, for example, they start to run security for the World Trade Center complex after the '93 uh, World Trade mm. Center bombing. So they're, you know, they're this very secretive, well-connected elite organization who are simultaneously a very clean, neat corporation that you can, uh, you know, put in charge of your multi-billion-dollar uh, complex that's about to be hit by a terrorist attack. Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a couple things that are really indicative of uh, uh, Kroll's role in this sort of network. Uh, I found a Business Wire article from 2004 called Kroll Launches High-Risk Securities Business, headed by Alistair Morrison. Now, high-risk securities business is like, oh, they're trading in stocks or something. Not quite. Uh, Morrison was a uh, high-ranking SAS man famous for storming a hijacked plane in, I think, Mogadishu in the 70s, killing a bunch of hijackers. He also started uh, something called Defense Systems Limited. And now listeners of this show should by now be able to pick up the kind of name that is synonymous with private military contracting. (laughs) Defense Systems Limited, uh, here's a little indicative case for them. 
They had an outpost in Colombia, supposedly protecting the offices and, I believe, rigs of British Petroleum. What they were actually doing was collecting intelligence on people who didn't like the oil rigs and people who didn't like the government and handing them over to paramilitary death squads who would take these people out in the middle of the nights and shoot them. Um, This is from the article. The intense hostility that corporations and government agencies face in diverse world regions, I love the way these guys talk, has created an unprecedented demand, this is in 2004, mind you, has created an unprecedented demand for services to ensure the security of people, property, and operations, said Michael Cherkasky, Kroll President and Chief Executive Officer. Kroll's global infrastructure, reputation security, and success on Iraqi assignments position us to play a key role in this vital area. With Alistair Morrison leading the charge, we are confident that we will provide special value to clients and serious competition to the niche players in high-risk security. Niche players. Another thing that Kroll got involved with was the uh, murder of Roberto Calvi. Um, Roberto Calvi was a member of that famous Masonic Lodge, P2, and he was also what is known as God's Banker. He was uh, he was headed up the Banco Ambrosiano. I was just waiting uh, for you to say that. I love. It. I have like eight <laughs> books on Calvi. A big. We gotta do. We. I, I, big Calvi guy here. Big Calvi guy. Uh, anyways, he was found hanging from Blackfriars Bri- Blackfriars Bridge. That's that's really difficult to sound like you're not. You don't have a lisp there. Blackfriars Bridge in London in 1982. This is important because, as a member of Licio Gelli's P2 Lodge, he was what was known as a fraternary, or a black friar. Anyways, Kroll said there was some foul play involved. Never got the killers. Yeah, and then Calvi, too, I mean, like to tie it back to Pacenti, who was, who was the leader of Le Cirque, or definitely the Italian Le Cirque representative for a long time. Uh, Pacenti and Calvi were in a, a long financial battle that, that took mm. place just before the, the collapse of Banco Ambrosiano. So, you know, even within these groups, uh, there's still lots of infighting and conflict between them, even while they have the same goals and, and uh, kind of work together from time to time. Sometimes you just got to hang one of your boys from a bridge. You, you know, know, it happens. It happens. I, that's, it's, that's the terrain. I, I love my guys, but like, you know, money's money. That's what happens when dudes don't rock. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you put swag over class, Liz. (laughs) That's why you never fuck that up. Well, you mentioned that, I mean, Kroll has like an explicit, a more explicit relationship with the events of September 11th. I mean, you mentioned that they were hired after the 93 bombing, um, but there's also some like, there's some more explicit ties to the World Trade Center and to 9-11 that maybe we should get into. Yes. Well, there's this whole, um, there's this whole complex of people. Again, I like taking these little slices of these networks that are a part of this mm-hmm. and just trying to figure out what are the relationship between this, this small group of people. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of get a sense of like what's, what's going on in this little corner uh, of these elite circles. So Kroll, uh, Kroll is, is very closely connected to this company, Marsh and McLennan, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of like an accounting firm. They also do all kinds of like risk consulting, 
So it's it's like a, uh, it sort of edges into Kroll territory, but it's a little bit more financial focused and a little bit more uh, legit than what Kroll does. Um, and both of them have a very close relationship with AIG. Uh, so this is all chiefly relevant because uh, American 11 that crashed into World Trade Center 1, all of the floors that it impacted, floor, so the plane hit floors 93 through 99, Mm-hmm. Marshall McLennan's offices were 93 through 100. So all of the floors that were hit by the plane were Marshall McLennan's office. Not long after 9-11, in I think 2004, Marshall McLennan bought Kroll. Hmm. And on 9-11, uh, Marshall McLennan's CEO is Jeffrey Greenberg, whose father is this guy Maurice Greenberg, uh, who, if you know anything about AIG, that name will ring a bell. He was long, long, long time chairman of AIG. And he was also very good friends with Bill Casey, uh, who obviously was uh, Reagan's campaign manager and, and he was head of the CIA for a long time. And actually, uh, Casey, like, there's like a memo on the CIA website of Casey uh, recommending somebody's resume for Greenberg to hire uh, at, uh, at AIG. So they were, they were quite close. Uh, friends. So when you have this uh, Lecirque connected private intelligence group that is closely financially connected to uh, the company that owned all of the floors in the North Tower that were hit, which is very closely financially connected to uh, a key CIA asset in the financial world, Maurice Greenberg, uh, it's just an interesting, I don't know, it's an interesting, yes, interesting picture to paint. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of coincidences here, but that's the thing. They're just coincidences. <laughs> we should say, I mean, we should probably get into a little bit about AIG. I'm sure some people know that name. Um, maybe from their like cursory, maybe you like remember from the financial crisis, they were pretty big, uh, <laughs> pretty big player in the financial crisis. <laughs> they were pretty that's big so. back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, uh, Amer- it stands for American International Group, and it's basically a kind of AIG is like a multinational. I think it's like one of the largest multinational like finance and insurance companies in the world. I think they have like it's like eighty. It's like every country. They're literally in every country. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, it's a massive, massive global country or company. Well, or country uh, that controls and moves around massive massive amounts of money and has for decades uh but they're yeah so this is they're like a really big power player in the finance and and insurance industry and they have a lot of you know as you might imagine they have a lot of elite connections right kissinger who we've mentioned a couple times before he's on the board of aig for a long long time Mm -hmm. basically ran aig with maurice greenberg uh, Hank Greenberg is, is probably also what people know him as. Yeah. Uh, so they, I mean, they basically ran AIG together. Um, and it was also, you know, some of the, um, for example, like David, David Cohen, who was the deputy director of ops for the CIA, uh, got hired like less than a year before 9-11 to be AIG's uh, kind of security consultant, like some kind of risk management job, but it basically mm. came down to like knowing about international affairs through his networks. Mm. Um, so again, it's like a major, you know, major insurance company that has a big stake in uh, a, a major piece of property in downtown Manhattan. Uh, they get, you know, hints that something is coming, so they start to hire somebody who's got 
connections, right? Like David Cohen's deputy director of ops for the CIA. Mm -hmm. He can get them not necessarily all of the information that they need, but can get them some of the information that they would need to sort of know what's coming up. Um, you know, this is all speculation, but if you think about how these corporations work and how these elite power networks work, uh, you know, I think the idea that this company that's at the very, very top connected to a lot of the foreign policy elite via Kissinger to a lot of the intelligence elite via Hank Greenberg, uh, the idea that they would have an inkling that something's coming and they start hire up some CIA talent who have connections to figure out what that might be. Uh, you know, I think that's, I think that's what you start to see here. Cause another person that gets hired by Marshall McLennan is Paul Bremer, who was like a, a you know, top oh, neocon. Yeah. So like they, you know, it's not a unique thing. They're, they're hiring these people up. Well, there's, there's another guy that, that is actually running World Trade Center security, I believe, on 9-11. Actually, I know on 9-11. John O'Neill, who was a FBI man who was basically in charge of their Bin Laden case. He is hired on August 23rd of 2001, and uh, uh, he dies in the attack. I believe he actually was let go from the FBI after he had a briefcase full of, like, uh, super secret intelligence papers. He just like left it on the subway and someone took it. I mean, who knows what's up with that baby, but like, uh, yeah, he was like their guy for bin Laden and, you know, went to Pakistan, all this stuff. Uh, and, uh, and you know, just coincidentally month before it happens, gets hired. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to cry over the death of a G man necessarily, no, but, no. but on the other hand, I don't think it's a coincidence that he, he did not have enough foreknowledge to not be in the building. Cause there were a lot of people who were but, not in either buildings. Yeah. That knew not to go. Not Some to go people there who morning. actually went there every single day just, just decided to take the day off. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? You know, you know? again though, like that's why we, that's, it's a coincidence thing. That's the thing that like, 9-11 is really known for it. Just a bunch of uh, things that don't connect to each other that all happened for no reason. Simultaneously for some reason. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of, that's what's called magic, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, AIG's just in, the, in their history, there's so many coincidences in their history. Like how they were, you know, very much responsible for the financial crisis and yet made $180 billion dollars. <laughs> in the bailout from it. So what, what a weird a coincidence. Money to make a little money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I feel we'd be remiss not to mention friends of the pod uh, and current people who paid for my scholarship to Harvard, uh, the Carlisle Group. <laughs> Absolutely. Got to mention the sponsor at least once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sponsor of t- 9-11, to be clear. Yes. Yes. That's right. We, uh, we talked about Carlisle a little bit. Uh, on our first episode, which hopefully by now everyone has listened to and taken notes and listened to again and taken more notes. Um, but I don't think we talked about them enough or gave enough like kind of background there. Uh, when we're kind of talking about these, like you said, these looking at these little slices from these different kind of groups and trying to suss out these kind of um, elite circles and, you know, like you say, it's, you know, they all have kind of aligned interests and yet there's different kind of factions and different moving parts and different kind of uh, corners of the room that you need to shine light on. And Carlisle is like one of these kind of players, um, very much a, a kind of uh, global elite group that has a bit of, you know, it does have a, a good 
like honest front, but that's not the whole story with them. Yeah, I think of Carlisle because right, Carlisle has the front of being sort of wealth management, private mm-hmm. equity. You know, mm-hmm. if you're just a regular old rich person, you know, one of the handful of, you know, multi-billionaires, right? You're just going to give money to Carlisle to invest and do whatever with. Right. Yeah, it's um, a big but, pimping company. That's what absolutely. I call them. BPCs. <laughs> but they're, they're also the, this continuation of uh, how, do, how are CIA, how's the, how are the intelligence agencies going to launder money? They need financial institutions that can make that happen. And I think of Carlisle as being sort of a continuation of like BCCI and, and other groups that had existed before. Um, and they, yeah, I mean, like, on, you know, on 9-11, for example, uh, Frank Carlucci, who had been former CIA deputy director, he's, he's the chairman. You know, another senior person in Carlisle is obviously H.W. Bush. So they, in addition to being, you know, a big company, they end up having these very elite connections uh, and in Carlisle in particular, it's a lot of uh, defense connections uh, and intelligence connections. And so that ends up being a lot of what they invest in. So they invest in, uh, you know, companies that make weapons, private military companies. They also invest in these kinds of uh, like quasi-private military corporations. Um, so they get directly involved in these conflicts uh, via, these, via these financial holdings. Uh, and then I think clearly they are a way to pay out people uh, by saying, hey, you know, we're going to do this thing. We're going to make this thing happen. Uh, give you, you know, just the minimal details they'd need to know. Uh, and, and, you know, we can guarantee you're going to have this return. Uh, so it, it acts in that way as well. Well, I, I believe we mentioned this on the other episode, but George W. Bush Sr., or George Bush Sr., excuse me, no W., uh, was actually in a meeting with, with our, some of our good friends, the Bin Ladens, uh, on the morning of 9-11. Yeah, there was a, I don't know if they met on the morning of 9-11, but it was a conference that was being held. And they, H.W. Bush and uh, had been there the night before. And then I think James Baker was Mm -hmm. also there, who was like, you know, former, former uh, Secretary of State. So, uh, and then, yeah, like Shafiq bin Laden was there. So there was, uh, who's, who's, uh, uh, I guess he'd be a half brother of Osama bin Laden. Um, so there, there's, there are all of these uh, Saudi ties as well that, that come via the Carlisle Group. Uh, it ends up being, uh, particularly post-BCCI, it ends up being like one of the main ways uh, that the Saudis are connected to the American elite financially is, is via the Carlisle Group. Um, so it's, it's, definitely a big, it's definitely a big player in this. Yeah, well, on the BCCI thing for a second there, you know, I, I know we talked about them in another episode, but... but... What I want to stress here is that I think that there's sort of a mental block, at least there has been with me at certain points in my life, by being like, well, okay, this group existed, but then they ended their existence. And so, like, that necessarily marks the end of the operation and, you know, the beginning of a new one or whatever. But, like, you really got to get past that mindset and be like, well, okay, BCCI goes under. That doesn't matter. That's just a tactic in the operation. That tactic is still in play. And so, like, it doesn't matter what name it has. And like, uh, you know, something we talked about, uh, I think on the third episode with, 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 uh, with Monsieur, Monsieur Judge, uh, is that like, these guys got really good at this kind of stuff, you know, like some of it might start out sloppy. Someone might find the membership list for P2, uh, you know, some enterprising journalist might, uh, you know, a few weeks before he gets assassinated, find something out here or there. But then at the end of it, like, you know, they, they got a lot better. They didn't have to kill Gary Webb, you know, I mean, 
they did kill Yeri Webb. But like it's it's like they 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 got a lot better at these tactics and they employ the same ones over and over, but they refine them. You know, and 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 they professionalize them in a way. And so you end up with something like Carlisle. Yeah, cuz BCC I obviously eventually got like you know, got audited yeah, and yeah, yeah. got shut down and, and definitely a lot of people lost money. Uh, so, but Carlisle has been, you know, just trucking along. They, they make enough money. They can, you know, they have enough connections to keep people off their backs. Uh, so they've really perfected it at this point. Well, you mentioned that Carlisle was kind of the, the go between, or at least historically, not so much anymore, obviously, but was kind of like the go between between the U S and the Saudis and helping kind of really establish that relationship. Um, obviously with the Bush oil money and the oil dynasty, that's, that's like a big, you know, player in here. And we, we got into some of that stuff in the first episode in this series, but there's a lot more to talk about with the Saudis because, um, well, there's just always so much to talk about (laughs) with the Saudis, but we didn't really, I mean, we barely even scratched the surface with like all of the kind of, when we say the Saudis, who we mean, and the different kind of players there. Yeah, I think one of the key ones is is obviously the intelligence service of any country is is definitely really important. And and because of the relationship that, you know, H.W. Bush uh, had a very close relationship with Kamal Adam, who was the head of the the GID, uh, I guess before 1979. So even back in those days when Bush was not uh, technically a spy, you know, he already had a close relationship because mm. of his oil ties. Um, and so that, like that Bush connection is made very, very early on. Uh, and it remains really close, you know, that was like in the, you know, fifties into the sixties. Um, and that remains really close for a long time. And, and, um, you know, the, the Carlisle ends up becoming in the, you know, in the latter days, uh, becomes one of the ways that Bush, uh, is able to get these people money and that they're able to get him money is that they have this relationship via Carlisle. Uh, you know, one of the key people in that, uh, relationship is 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 Prince Turkey Al Faisal, who was um, he was the head of the GID for a long time. He was later, I think, the ambassador to the UK and the US. Um, and he's he's you know he uh, quit like just just before nine uh, eleven. I think it was like literally two weeks before nine eleven. Uh, and we talked about the role that the Saudi intelligence likely had, and obviously you know the the Patsies. Uh, were the the 19 hijackers who were very closely controlled by the GID right. and other Gulf state intelligence agencies. Um, so you know Prince Turkey's financial relationship uh, with the Bushes is I don't think coincidental to that. They're they're closely aligned, uh, you know, strategically in terms of you know the U.S. and Saudis having this relationship with respect to the oil supply. They're also directly making money for one another, uh, and then they have these security considerations where. You know, after 9/11, they can they can create this security arrangement that protects Saudi Arabia uh, and makes makes the Saudi elite uh, a lot stronger. Uh, so this this Carlisle becomes like one of the ways, one of the one of the avenues that they have this contact and this connection with each other. And that kind of, I mean, that still exists today, even with the Bushes sort of out of the. I mean, it is kind of funny. You know, I was thinking about them earlier because actually, okay. <laughs> This is embarrassing, but I'll admit it. I was watching the Today Show, um, and the fucking one of the Bush daughters is like a, a 
I almost just called really? her a hostess. It's like a host on the Today Show, which yeah. is so Wait, fucking weird. Is it weird. possible to be a like right wing politician from the early two thousands daughter and not have a TV? Fucking no, show? that's like the only <laughs> thing they can do. Christ, dude, they did nine yeah. eleven. Yeah, now they're doing daytime TV. Yeah, man, she's My at Thirty God. Rock, back where it all started. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I was watching it and I was just like, man. The Bush family, where are they now? Like, this is not this is not the dynasty it once was. <laughs> I don't know no. if it's because none of them had sons, not to get all gendered or whatever. But, like, it got a bunch of failed daughters. This is not, you know, uh, running Carlisle and running guns and yeah. running drugs and running oil all over the world. You know what I mean? Well, there's still a Melvin Bush, right? Like the other Bush brother? Um, also, like, uh, I shouldn't discount clear, Jeb. George W. Bush's <laughs> wife killed a, uh, killed a person when she was like 16 years old. Yeah. Um, so, something I always like to mention, you know, I get it. You're a kid, you're drunk, you're driving, still fucking killed somebody. I kind of don't get it, to be honest. I'm not, yeah. Well, you know, I've been <laughs> don't. before. I don't know how to drive, so I don't fully get it. Yeah. That's the lesson. Never learn how to drive. Protect yourself. And, and. Speaking just particularly about uh, about Prince Turkey, um, at one point in 2002, I believe, uh, a high-ranking member of Al-Qaeda, uh, I believe a Saudi citizen named Abu Zubaya, uh, Zabaida, excuse me, was captured in Pakistan. He is, you know, classic black bag, uh, you know, uh, extradition taken to all taken to places like Poland, uh, at Guantanamo Bay. At one point, he was put in a coffin and covered in cockroaches by our good friends in the CIA. Anyways, uh, he names a couple of people as his main points of contact with sort of this network. One of them is a high-ranking Pakistani Air Force officer, and the other one is Prince Turkey Al-Faisal. Faisal had a a long relationship with Osama bin Laden, uh, and I often use Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, mm. the uh, Washington Post columnist who was killed. Yeah, uh, he was just, he was yeah, Washington Post columnist in quotation yeah, marks. That's right. Yeah, Washington Post columnist means CIA asset. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think like, I'm I think like we joke understood. about that, but like that is actually no, true. no, literally, yes, yeah, absolutely. And like Daily Beast is guys who are trying to be. There. And I'm sorry, yes. let, let's not forget our favorite our faves at the Lion New York Times, fail in New York Times. That's Pentagon. It's all every, you know, I got to say, I, Ben, I was thinking of you because I watched uh, for some fucking reason. This is so terrible because I admitted that I watched the Today Show the other day. (laughs) And now I'm admitting that I watched that fucking movie with Tom Hanks about the the Washington Post. It's so awful. But I mean, it's like an interesting, it's interesting to watch. It's like Oscar bait, whatever. It's uh tom hanks and uh meryl streep and it's about the publishing of the pentagon papers but it's Uh, like super fascinating sometimes i like watching these movies because i like to see how they want to represent these events and you know they you know it's this like struggle about the free press and they're obviously trying to say something about i don't know fucking trump or something probably who cares but it was so fascinating watching these guys like put forth this idea that all these like little gumshoe reporters out there just trying to get to the bottom of things. Like if all, once journalism stands up to, you know, 
the big dogs in the White House who think they can keep running things the way they are. Like, nope, journalism will come and save the day. And it's like, my God. I mean, I know that we go off about journalists all the time on this podcast, which, you know, not great for, you know, some reasons, but really great for other reasons, which is that, like, even the amount we go off on them is still not enough. (laughs) Like, I don't have... Like, there's not enough time in, like, our entire podcast catalog for us to, like, go off on how much the fucking media sucks. I'm sorry. Like, all of these guys are lackeys for the state. All of them. And it it just, like, I can't stress it enough. I don't know. It makes me so angry. I know you, you hate journalists almost as much as I do, Ben. The way that Khashoggi got talked about after he was killed as being like a free press guy. It's like this guy literally ran the Saudi press for the royal family. Like that's what he was. He was their propagandist. And he was also, of course, a CIA propagandist as well. But he was was also like the point of contact between Prince Turkey al-Faisal and Osama bin Laden because... Khashoggi would go to Afghanistan to write these stories about the brave Mujahideen fighters. And then while he was doing that on the side, he was, you know, maintaining this connection. I'm sure that they had others, but that was definitely one of them. Uh, And the way that the way that nobody talked about any of that stuff, it was all this just bullshit about press freedom in the Gulf. And I, (laughs) I mean, it's so crazy. And And the girl who even broke the story, I mean, she was the, I mean, she was obviously his handler. I mean, just at yep. in the middle of the night yep. starts tweeting like, uh-oh, we can't contact Jamal. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that whole thing, brother, there is some, Ugh. I mean, that's a, cold, talk about a fucking cold case file there. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's also sort of interesting to note, you know, obviously his uncle, Anand Khashoggi, um, yep. you know, you mentioned the Safari Club earlier. The Safari Club was named as such because uh, these these representatives from these intelligence agencies actually met at a, a a club called the Safari Club, owned by Anand Khashoggi, used for uh, I'm sure totally above board and really just relaxing safari like purposes. It's the best game park in Eastern Kenya, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and and you know another thing about Anand is uh, is of course the Queen song Khashoggi's yacht. I think it's called. Uh, uh, I believe that um, Robert Maxwell purchased um, Khashoggi's boat and, uh, excuse me, yacht. There's specific definitions for these things. And I'm not entirely sure if I'm remembering correctly, but that might have eventually become the Lady Ghislaine. And it, yeah, and then I, I don't know if it was that one or it was a different one, but yeah, uh, I, I, Trump, yeah, I might, might Trump be also ended up owning one of Khashoggi's yeah. yachts as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, Khashoggi... Uh, was a key player in in this uh, Safari Club network specifically that you mentioned. Uh, Peter Dale Scott puts him in a in a, this article in Lobster as one of the controllers of the international heroin traffic, and he's got some Love good Lobster. information to back that stuff up. Uh, so he's like a big and very important cutout uh, between the American elite and the Saudi elite for sure. Uh, and I think the fact that he's you know obviously very close with the Bushes and and Turkey Al all that's that's. Uh, uh, not a coincidence. And he was also, uh, I haven't seen any follow-up on this, but uh, supposedly Epstein worked for Anand Khashoggi. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I've seen that too. 
I have not. Um, I I just saw that like reported in a one-off thing, and I have not seen anybody look at like when exactly it was or what he supposedly did. I mean, they mentioned something about he's trying to find money for Khashoggi. Yeah, well, he's a financial bounty hunter. Yeah, he yeah. was like bragging that he was like taking, you know, going and picking up money from warlords in Africa. It's like, yeah. I mean, obviously he was some kind of bag man. Uh, yeah. Before yeah. he fi- sort of found his uh, his niche there. But that like- one I always pause on, and then the Gillane shooting. Colombian, <laughs> like, or was it was it Colombian? No, it was Colombian. She yeah. she was she uh, she would claim at dinner parties to have ridden in very specifically in a Black Hawk helicopter and shot rockets at a uh, <laughs> at a Marxist. I mean, there's a couple of Marxist guerrilla groups in Colombia. Sure, but she says she shot it at one of their tanks. Which no, 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 they don't have a tank. So she probably shot it at like a car full of like peasant farmers or something. Yeah. That uh, is but like that's not generally, wild. you know, there's a lot of rich people in this world. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Dan Bilzerian. Actually, Dan Bilzerian would probably try to do this. But like, even he, they're not like letting him shoot a fucking rocket in a Black Hawk helicopter. I mean, that lady, Ghislaine Maxwell, full of shit. But like, that's a very specific lie if she told one. Well, speaking of Gillane, there is one thing that we haven't talked about, much to the chagrin of some little people with Twitter accounts out there, and that is the Mossad (laughs) and the Israeli intelligence connections, because we've talked about the ISI, we've talked about uh, the Saudi intelligence, we've talked about, obviously, the CIA and uh, the UK, and now with Le Cirque, a kind of... um, parapolitical private intelligence organization. But we still haven't talked about the Israeli intelligence connections, and there are quite a few that we should get into. Yeah, I mean, this is especially pertinent now because, you know, with this, you know, normalization between the UAE and, and Israel, which is really like, there has been a normalization, I'm doing air quotes here, for a while between the Gulf states and in, in, in Israel. And of course, like one of the most important things they collaborate on is is intelligence. Because they have the ultimate enemy of Iran, uh, which they which they you know share a very common goals with each other in in wanting to wipe it off the map. Um, but like I think it's especially pertinent to to mention this now. And of course, you know Epstein's passport said his place of residence was Riyadh or his false passport. Um, but yeah, there are uh, there's 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 a couple of uh, Israeli links to to this. Let's say the 9-11 debacle. Well, not a debacle, the successful 9-11 operation. Yeah, I think one of them is definitely, I think there's a lot of Israeli elite connections as well, uh, and a lot of Zionists in the U.S. Mm-hmm. that have connections to the Israeli elite. I mean, I think the, you know, the Israeli elite and American elite are pretty enmeshed, generally speaking, mm-hmm. uh, but there definitely are, are people who are closer uh, to the Israeli elite in the United States. But, but you know, through the intelligence side of things, um, like you mentioned, I think very briefly, Brace, you mentioned the dancing Israelis, and then we didn't mm-hmm. follow up on it. Yeah, but that yeah is- well, I mean, it was the greatest night of my life. There was seven, <laughs> six of us out at this Berlin nightclub, and it was just, it was fantastic. Oh, you're the New Jersey ones. Never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. The, uh, the New Jersey, sorry, not to be confused with the German dancing Israelis. This is yes. the, the New Jersey, the Weehawken dancing yeah. Israelis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's, uh, but it was a, it, you know, 
this was one of those things that was, um, I, I feel like became a kind of an urban myth. Something yeah, it that did. People, people, but people like, don't even, think it really happened. Yeah, but even the way it was spread was was people sort of like, uh, you know, obviously like anti-Semites mentioning it, but mm. also just like kind of a general, I don't know, it was like an urban myth, along with the one that is definitely not true about uh, like some, you know, huge number Muslim of Israelis. Self. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, yes. Well, there, there's, got, there's sort of, there's two myths of the Muslims like going wild and celebrating right. and then like 50 Israelis dancing on rooftops and stuff. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. and the supposed Israelis who were warned not to go to work that day, which mm-hmm. is not is not really true. Well, they but were warned one, on 4chan. Like some of you are some of you are pretty. Cool. Like, don't, <laughs> yeah, go don't go to don't go to Little Trade Center tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But the the dancing Israelis is like a very clear intelligence connection. So first off, like what is it that happened? These these five guys who worked for a moving company uh, were standing like on the uh, on sort of the bluffs, looking over Lower Manhattan, and they were taking photos of each other standing in front of the smoldering wreckage. Like one of them had a guy like holding a lighter up um, and some witnesses. Someone uh, like holding his hand up to make it seem like he's holding like up he the remains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think a, I think a witness uh, saw them and narked on them and, and called the cops or something. And somehow the FBI became involved. I don't know why the FBI becomes involved. I don't think that she identified them as Israeli. I don't know what about them would seem Israeli. Mm -hmm. So I assume that the FBI had some inkling that there was a Mossad front group operating in northern New Jersey and that maybe they should show up for this. Because it did turn out um, there was a a French intelligence report that leaked uh, that basically said the FBI had been observing this moving company. I think they were called Urban Moving Systems. It was employing these five guys. and they had like $5,000 in cash in the van. They had box cutters in the van, which is not surprising for a moving company, I guess. But what is surprising is the explosives residue uh, that they found on the van. Mm. Uh, the follow-up tests were supposedly inconclusive. I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Uh, but the, they were also connected to another moving company in Florida, in Miami, uh, that according to mm. somebody at the FBI, Miami station had actually moved uh, one of the 9-11 hijackers at one point. That the, one of the 9-11 hijackers had, had hired this moving company. Uh, oh. And this, this moving company's phone number was in the pocket of the urban moving systems dancing Israelis in New York. So there's clearly a connection between uh, these two groups. Uh, so it, it, uh, this, along with uh, before, before 9-11, the DEA... Uh, we're getting these weird visits from people who claimed to be art students from Israel. Mm-hmm. And a lot of different DEA agents at different field stations across the U.S. experienced this. And so somebody at the DEA wrote up a memo about this, that this had happened. Uh, and so then following this, uh, the, the, there was this, this same intelligence report finds out that these students were very likely Mossad agents so a lot of them were located in the, the South Florida area where some of the hijackers were living. So it's very likely that these Mossad agent uh, posing as Israeli art students were surveilling the 9-11 hijackers before the attacks. Uh, so it, what this, and then also as well, the other thing that happened was in very early August, a lot of different intelligence agencies were giving information to the United States, to the CIA. And one of the things that Mossad gave the U.S. was the names of four of the hijackers who were already mm-hmm. in the U.S. at this point. 
uh, except that they told the CIA that these hijackers were planning an attack outside the United States. So this doesn't make any sense. If you have the names of these people, it's very, very easy to find out where they are, that they are in the United States. And of course, it's very likely that Mossad was uh, observing these people, surveilling mm -hmm. them. Uh, why was this information withheld or modified uh, so that the CIA would not find out about it? I think, you know, very likely Mossad is playing some role in, in uh, not necessarily handling, but this is they want to surveil the other part of the operation that's happening that they know about just to keep tabs on it. Uh, and so that's that's the little piece of it that we get is these this weird story about these five Israelis dancing in front of the wreckage uh, and these art students who are who are surveilling the hijackers. Yeah, like I want to be clear on this. Like like Ben was saying earlier, like there is, you know, sort of this idea that mentioning the dancing Israelis is like an anti-Semitic sort of dog whistle. And like indeed for some people it is, you know, like who who uh, basically expand all of this um, and, and ignore many of the Anglos that uh, <laughs> that were involved in this as well. Um, but like, no, this is reported, like a lot of the information I got from this, not a lot, but an article I read on this is in the Jewish Daily Forward, which is, you know, tends not to be, um, well, let's just say they're very sensitive souls over there. Um, but like, it, it, you know, they, they had no... You know, the, the forward itself um, had, had no qualms about saying like, yeah, these guys were linked to intelligence. You know, like I believe the guy who ran the moving company, who owned the moving company was like a, a Mossad officer. You know, I, I'm not sure if they were ever to prove it for be able to prove it for the actual movers. Um, but but they did not do a lot of interviews after they got back to uh, to, to Israel and they were kicked out of the country on visa violations. Mm. Um, and and from what I understand, that is sort of the polite way to remove a friendly spy is to sort of snatch them up and be like, okay, well, you've overstayed your visa, even if you haven't, and it's time to go. Um, it, there does not seem to be a lot of protest registered from the uh, Israeli embassy over that. But yeah, these guys really faded into the background once they got back to Israel. They, they refused to do any interviews. They said they were too traumatized to talk. Uh, you know, I, it's funny. They were actually thrown into the MDC where Ghislaine is now, so... Perhaps she's uh, sniffing their explosive residue there on the bunk beds. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just one of those, like, it, it, it's, it's like you're saying earlier, it's like one of the slice of, like, of these organizations here. And you can really learn a lot from that because that's really the only way that, like, you can look at this stuff and not go insane is to examine it piece by piece by piece by piece and then see how those pieces connect together. And sometimes those pieces don't always perfectly connect together. But, like, that's because also we don't, we really have all of the information either. Um, and like, that's why, like, I think sort of the lack of research around nine 11 of like serious research around like, like, like this, this should be counted, you know, in official testimonies of it, right? Like this seems pretty important that like five Israeli intelligence agents were snatched up, uh, you know, across the banks of the Hudson or whatever on the morning of nine 11. Um, but but it really is like there's there's a lot of sort of disinformation, misinformation out there too that really muddies muddies the water with this stuff. Even though it's it's incredibly serious. I mean, 9/11 has affected basically every facet of life post 9/11. You know, it changed the whole world. Um, yeah. There's a there's a really cool uh, philo uh, uh, historian. I think he's Swiss, Daniela Ganser. Um, he wrote one of the really good books on Gladio. Uh, as his PhD dissertation, which I think sort of put him in a really good spot to understand 9-11 when it happened. Yeah. Uh, and since then, I, uh, you know, fortunately he speaks English, but in the sort of German language media, 
in, in Switzerland and Germany, he's one of the, the, the people that's sort of uh, advancing alternative theories to the mainstream theory about 9-11. And it is, a, I, think, I think, you know, his approach to it is a very scholarly, academic, historian's uh, approach. I don't think it's surprising that uh, people in history, in, in international relations in particular, you know, there's either direct pressure from your employers. Uh, obviously, a lot of mm. departments in, in academia are connected to intelligence, but also just generally, you know, if you're a historian to ask some of these questions, uh, means you're not going to get your papers published. It means people mm. are not going to take you seriously. Uh, so there's very, very few people who are, who are actually doing real academic level, because uh, obviously there's great research happening. It just doesn't have a lot of institutional support. Most of these people are um, trying to do it you know, as a, as a side gig or, or not really making much money on it. Well, I think something that happened too, um, I mean, I know this happened and, you know, whether, you know, I'm sure we all have our own opinions about, you know, how softly or explicitly this was pushed by uh, government actors or state actors. Um, but, you know, there was like a real concerted effort to paint anyone who had questions about the official narrative about 9-11, which, I mean, like a really, like a, a big effort to paint them as like cranks and nut jobs and wackos. And Alex, it got relegated to the Alex Joneses and the, you know, ancient aliens kind of um, crowd. And I mean, that was obviously a tactic, okay. Um, but it's a real shame because... What's funny is like I mean I remember you know in the the months and years after I mean I would say up until at least like 2006 2007 like questioning what happened and and being and you know I mean I remember reading the 911 commission report when it was mm -hmm. published like I was very much like following what was going on and you know where these like narratives were coming from and like it wasn't so um i mean it not to say it was mainstream to kind of question things but it wasn't as crank as it is portrayed now like that that what happened i think kind of in the later bush years and then obviously in the obama years and particularly in the run up to the election of obama to like paint anyone uh, as a kind of like right wing crank that thought that, you know, there was that something is missing from the official narrative of what happened on 9 11. Like, uh, I don't know, it still persists. It absolutely still persists. And it's so wild because, uh, I mean, almost everyone, whether or not they want to say it out loud, but almost everyone accepts that the, if that, that, you know, what happened with JFK is not what happened with JFK, whether or not they want to go, depending on how far they want to go and what they think happened, or if they even want to get to the point where they're like even formulating an opinion about what happened. Almost everyone agrees that the, the magic bullet is ridiculous. Right. But like the same isn't for nine 11 at all. And there was like a very concerted effort. Even Chris Hayes recently tweeted that, and in praise of this, he said, I was part of a cohort that attacked and expelled, quote unquote, truthers from the from left wing politics. And it was successful, kind of comparing it to QAnon, whatever. 
And, you know, I don't think that anything that we've laid out in this series, in the last three episodes or in this episode or in what will be in the next part of this, like, is like Ben isn't a crank. We're not cranks. We're laying out like his history. Like all of these people are real. All of these organizations are real. All of this happened. Like you can't. This isn't crank theory. Um, And I I just like I I don't know if we can do anything with on this podcast and on this podcast is like pushing back on this idea that that questioning what the government tells you makes you a crank like it's just completely absurd and and especially when like we said all of these groups formed explicitly as anti-communist political organizations like it is essential as an essential part of any kind of left-wing education to know this stuff and i just like i i don't know i i have no patience for it for the Chris Hayes of the world and anyone who is sympathetic to that shit, you know? Well, I, I think something like, like I, I, I want to impart, I mean, I'd second basically everything you just said there. Um, but like, it's, it's for people to understand that the United States government, the governments of, well, a lot of the countries we've mentioned today are capable of doing extraordinary and, and like, you know, terrible deeds, basically. And like, to me, I think the safer assumption is to assume that, like, you know, 9-11 was a planned attack, right? And, and, and that, that, that it's because if you look at the after effects of this, I know I've said this on an earlier episode, the Bush administration could not have asked for a more favorable event. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's almost tailor. I mean, it, it was tailor-made for, for exactly what happened. Every single thing that happened in the follow-up to 9-11, from the Iraq War to the Patriot Act to just increased reliance on the government. I mean, we talk about the years of lead in Italy. I mean, this was the years of lead in one instant, right? All of a sudden, huge patriotic fervor. We're going to invade a fucking country that had nothing to do with 9-11 and obviously nothing to do with 9-11. And people believe that it did. You know, people went along with it. Um, And so, like... I think like, you know, if, if your automatic assumption here on, on hearing that, like, you know, we have these episodes or whatever is to be like, oh, this crank shit, like ask yourself why you're thinking that and like ask yourself, like, like, why do I believe that the government did Gladio or that they did, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment or, or, or really like any of the, you know, fucking, uh, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, you know, uh, ask yourself why those are all possible to you. And why this one just remains out of the realm of polite speech. And the thing is, like, by doing these episodes, like, we are going to probably turn off. I mean, we did some 9-11 episodes before, but, like, some people are probably going to be like, dismiss this now. And, like, okay, brother, you know, that's your prerogative. But, like, it's like, this is not this is an event. This is one of the most important events of, of any of our lifetimes. Hell, if, even if you weren't born, it's one of the most important events of your lifetime. It has affected every facet of your life. And, and, and I think that like, you really got to flip that like revulsion to thinking about it or repulsion to thinking about it on its head and be like, actually, no, I do need to think about this because this is like, this has touched you personally, no matter who you are, this has touched you personally. Um, and, and so if there's one thing, like, like, like Liz is saying, there's one thing we can depart from it, this, it's that. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. Like this, you know, I think the, the three of us obviously have our own point of view about what happened. But no matter what, like you say, this was a huge, huge transformative event 
And so you need to study it. And it is important, uh, you know, who owns the buildings, right? Who controlled the, you know, who had these connections to the uh, terrorist networks that supposedly crashed the planes? Like, these are important historical questions to get right. Uh, and they're important to have on the record. And so I think, you know, you should, even if you don't, haven't bought into the idea yet, I think take a look at some of the sources we've mentioned and stuff like that, um, because I think that these facts and these networks that uh, you could study when you look at this event are really significant. Um, and I think, you know, I think in the end, if you if you look through the facts, there's no reason to give any of these people the benefit of the doubt. Yes. You know, like Bryce mentioned, like what we know that these people are responsible for, you know, decades of political terrorism, right wing political terrorism in Europe you know, a decades-long campaign in South America. Like, there's absolutely no reason to give any of these people the benefit of the doubt. Not to mention, like, I mean, mass experiments and, um, like, obscene, obscene medical experiments in Africa that really yeah. are not even well-documented or people know that much about. And that's, like, that, like, reminds me of, like, just a, a brief tangent, but something that really annoys me is the... Um, I don't, I don't, I do understand how, but the idea of crisis actors has entered the lexicon mm. via yes. uh, certain like right wing outlets. And, you know, all of the examples of false flag terrorism that we know that happened, there's no crisis actors. It's actual real people that died because yeah. the people who do this stuff have no qualms about killing innocent people. It's just not even something that factors into. I mean, if you, for example, if you read the Operation Northwoods documents mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, Kennedy asked the Joint Chiefs, how can we overthrow Castro's government? The options that they gave him were like, you know, start up right wing terrorist groups in Miami, mm -hmm. you know, shoot down American airliners, attack uh, American ships. Uh, the idea that there would be civilian casualties, American civilian casualties was not even a consideration, didn't matter to them at all. Um, so these people are capable of great, great evil. There's, and they've doc been documented doing it. No reason to give any of them the benefit. Why would you give the guy who bombed North Vietnam to smithereens the benefit of the doubt on any of this stuff, right? If I was going to look for who, who did 9-11, Kissinger would be like <laughs> one of my number one yep. people that you would identify. And what do you know? There he is. He's right there in the middle of it all, right? So I think looking at these networks and looking at what these people have done uh, it just it it really it really impresses upon you like how how vast this network is that coordinated this uh, and the fact that they got basically exactly what they wanted uh, is a is a very sobering fact. Well, Ben, I, we're stoked. We love having you on, um, and we're gonna we're excited because we're gonna actually round out this series with part five in a little bit. So that's coming up, and um, stay tuned for that. But I think this has been, hopefully, a lot of people have learned some things. I think uh, I, I, my assumption is that a lot of people maybe haven't listened to the 9-11 series yet or started it from the beginning. And I implore you, if you haven't, open up that third eye, listen to, listen to those three episodes, and uh, come back and, and we'll have another one for you uh, pretty soon. Well, Ben, always a fucking pleasure, playboy. Thank you so much for having me. This is always a blast. I appreciate it. <laughs> we'll see you at the airport. Meet you there. <laughs>
Well, we, like I said, we got more. So stick around because mm-hmm. we got part five coming up. Wait, hold on. Are we going to have to do like 10 next year? We'll figure I don't it know. Out. We'll see. We'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. We can do that. I don't um, know. Maybe we can. Well, here's the thing there's another 9 11, Benghazi. <laughs> can you imagine if we did like a five part series on we Benghazi? Lit- I actually was at, I was about to suggest that to you after we stopped the interview. <laughs> we really should, because I don't think a lot of people really understand what was going on. I don't there, think that right? people know about Benghazi, and we could talk about Benghazi, they were but guns. I don't want to do five episodes on it. Well, then me and my friend, uh, who does happen to be the son of uh, Gaddafi, uh, maybe we can do our own spinoff podcast. Mm. Okay. Gaddafi pod. All right, let's terrible wrap her name. Up. Why he came up with it? It He's should the money be Padafi. John, John, I'm trying to make John Podesta and Gaddafi go no, together. No, just that seems Padafi. Padafi. I don't. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. All right. Dude, I literally don't understand. Well, explain to me after we finish. <laughs> or you can explain to me now, but I feel like that's rude to make you do that. It's funny they don't have a pod save Libya. Well, I mean, they don't really care, do they? They did it. Oh, Those yeah. guys worked for them. <laughs> Pod didn't save Libya. No, Pod destroyed Libya yeah. very badly. <laughs> All right, that's a little preview uh, to our Benghazi series. I'm hungry. I got meatballs in the other room that I got to eat. Oh, that sounds um, nice. Mm-hmm. All I'm, right, I'm we've been at this for excited. a couple hours. How do we sign this off again? What? Dude, oh. are you what? <laughs> You forgot how we sign off? <laughs> I'm Liz. Shit. I'm Brace. <laughs> We're joined by producer Young Chomsky. That was Truanon. on. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Jesus. Jeffrey Epstein.